right. Good morning, everyone. I was uh, I was asked as I walked into church uh, how long I would be preaching for, <clears throat> and I asked them, well, how long would you like me to preach for? Um, I said, well, it's between two minutes and two hours. I'm not sure. So that's all I can promise. <laughs> Um, this morning we're continuing our journey through the book of John. Before we get to our main text, which is what you can see on the screen there, uh, I just want to take a quick moment to be reminded of what is John's purpose in writing uh, his gospel. Why did he construct this particular account, and why is it different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke? what we call the synoptic gospels. The purpose of the gospel is actually given by John himself in in chapter 20. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This purpose was one that John, John had this in common with the Synoptic Gospels, but his method of achieving it distinguishes his Gospel from the earlier ones. According to John, the public ministry of Jesus can be summarized in connection with a number of miracles, or what he calls signs, that John reports and then are followed with interpretation that point to their spiritual significance. John only records seven miracles, which is much less than the number reported in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John does not regard the stories, the miraculous stories of themselves as having great significance, but rather the spiritual meaning implicit in the miracle. So here's a sign (laughs) that uh, is near the high school by the football field. I found this hilarious, actually. (laughs) I took a picture of it. Um, I'm just trying to imagine the progression, that once upon a time there was probably a sign that just said fire lane, and that's all it said, and then people were parking there. So they thought, well, we should change that to Fire lane, no parking. It didn't work, so (laughs) they came up with a new sign. Fire lane, positively, no parking. Positively, no parking. Okay, if it was just no parking, you know, go ahead, put your truck there. But positively, now now people will listen. (laughs) Um, So I don't know if it works. Uh, I don't. I park on the other side of the school, so I don't. I don't know if this sign works or not, but. Um, sometimes people, we don't get the message right away, right? We, we need extra to get the message, or we don't want to listen right away. We need maybe something to happen before we start to listen. Um, so the, the seven miracles I mentioned, we're, we're now in the miracle number six. The healing of the blind man is the sixth miracle in the book of John. And then the discussion that follows this healing makes it clear that John's John's major concern in the narrative is not this is not the physical sight that is you know taking the place of not having physical sight, um, but rather it's curing men and women of spiritual blindness. Those who fail to understand who Jesus is and the purpose of his mission in the world are spiritually blind. Only by coming under his influence can people pass from darkness to light. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Not only are there seven miracles in John's Gospels, but he also has seven metaphors using the phrase, I am, where Jesus says, I am, and then there's a metaphor to help us understand who he is. 
So these are the seven metaphors, really quickly. In chapter six, I am the bread of life. Chapter eight and nine, I am the light of the world. Chapter 10, I am the gate for the sheep. Chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. Chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Chapter 15, I am the true vine. Seven means complete in scripture. That's often why it's there. It's, it's a sign of this is the whole picture. So apparently John is trying to give us a complete picture of Jesus with these metaphors uh, to help us understand who Jesus is. We need metaphors often as people because um, it's something we can relate to, something we've experienced. Now as we learned from the last lesson that Darren preached at the end of um, John chapter 8, Jesus goes on to say something even more crazy I am, or before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Jesus claimed to be the God who revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. The Jewish leaders understood fully what Jesus was declaring, and this is why they had every intention of stoning him for blasphemy. And that's where we pick up the story. John chapter 9, first 12 verses. So if you have your Bibles, you can read along with me. John 9, 1. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world." After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, 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 he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud, put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed. And then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. So while I believe that this story is literal, historical, uh, there's a much bigger lesson being told here. It's much more than Jesus has the power to heal physical deformities like someone being born blind. When we look at this story within the context of the rest of the chapter and the rest of the book of John and the rest of scripture, the significance of this narrative is much deeper and much more profound, and that is that we, along with every other person in the world, have been born into spiritual blindness. And we are utterly helpless to cure this disease. But God has offered a solution, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. Before we proceed, I want to just put the three sort of main points up on the screen here, um, and then we'll go through them one at a time. So the first one is that we are spiritually blind, whether we acknowledge it or not. The second is we try to reduce God to a formula, and we can't see the big picture. And the third one is that reaction to transformation is revealing. For all three points, 
we need God. We need God to open our spiritual eyes to see reality and to change our hearts and our minds. We need God so that we can trust that he is sovereign. Even when the circumstances of our life are confusing, which is, you know, fairly often. (laughs) And we need God to give us the faith to believe that he can change people. Okay, so number one, we are spiritually blind whether we acknowledge it or not. Every once in a while I'll be watching a movie, something that Hollywood has made, and um, actually see a connection between what's on the screen or what I hear in the movie and what I read in the Bible. It actually doesn't happen that often anymore because (laughs) um, Hollywood is not interested in presenting Orthodox Christianity. In fact, they present the opposite. However, even either intentionally or accidentally, sometimes spiritual truths are seen in um, a Hollywood movie. So this happened when I was watching uh, The Matrix. Matrix, that's about 20 years old now. Uh, I'm talking about that movie, the original one. Not, not the one they just released, um, which I haven't watched, but apparently was an abomination. Um, <laughs> partly, partly because uh, these days, the people who make movies, they've kind of become bankrupt create, creatively, creatively bankrupt. Um, you know, an idea for a new... No, no, let's not come up with new ideas. Let's take something that people liked in the 80s or in the 90s and, and just do it again because it's safer that way. Um, and usually it, it's garbage. So anyway, I, I digress. <laughs> um, in, the, in the original movie, we, we have the two main characters, Neo and Morpheus, and they meet for the first time. And they have a conversation. Now, Neo is a seeker. He's trying to find the truth. And Morpheus uh, seems to be someone who can explain it to him. So this is what Morpheus says to Neo. What you know, you can't explain. But you feel it. You have felt it your entire life. That there's something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there. Like a splinter in your mind, driving you mad. The matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. Even now, in this very room, you can see it when you look out your window or turn on your television. You can feel it when you go to work, when you go to church, when you pay your taxes. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. What truth, asks Neo, that you are a slave, Neo. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage, born into a prison that you cannot smell or taste or touch, a prison for your mind. Then Morpheus offers Neo the choice. He can go back to his old life, or he can choose to have the entire story of the meaning of the universe revealed to him. Either choice has a cost. Now, if this, if this was uh, Final Jeopardy, let's imagine that you were on Final Jeopardy, somehow you got that far, <laughs> and the question was, how many blind people did Jesus heal in the New Testament? If you had to guess, you have to write down something, right? Uh, especially if you wager, if you bet all your money, <laughs> you got to got to do something. Um, it's actually essentially impossible to come up with the right answer uh, because there are passages in 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 the Gospels where it says crowds came to Jesus and some were lame and some were sick and some were blind and Jesus healed them. Well, how many people was that? Who knows? Um, but 
there are actual specific narr narratives, uh, and sometimes the people are even given names, that are healed from being blind to being able to see. At least eight people. And we find it in all four Gospels. However, John 9 is the only place in Scripture where it says that this blind man was blind from birth. From day one. This is meant to garner our attention because it parallels how we as humans are blind from birth, right from day one. The good news, of course, in this passage is that Jesus is the light of the world. He can take us from darkness into life, into light, so that we can see for the first time. Notice also that this blind man was given a choice. Jesus didn't just heal him. He could have, because he'd done that before, right? But he did something different. He was asked to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. Jesus put mud in his eyes. That didn't make him see immediately. He had to go do something. And he chose to obey. He went and washed. And then he could see. In the same way, Jesus gives all people a choice. You can walk in darkness. You can walk in blindness. You can pretend. You can pretend everything's fine. My life is good. Or you can recognize things aren't fine and turn to the true light and obey the voice of Jesus and actually experience life for the first time. Now, I told Darren, I, you know, I, I had to cheat a little bit. I couldn't just stay in these 12 verses. I had to cheat a little bit. So if you cheat, like I did, and go to the end of chapter 9, you'll see that Jesus meets the blind man later again for the second time. And... When this blind man encounters Jesus, he worships him. He could see. He could see Jesus for who he really was, that he is the creator, the God of the universe, in the flesh. Apparently, no one else was able to recognize that in this story. Second point, uh, we try to reduce God to a formula and we can't see the big picture. So for the Jewish people at the time, there was a very strong connection. The connection was you've got suffering, you've got sin. They're connected. They have to be connected. It's like an equation. All right? You're suffering or you must have sinned. That's it. The disciples come to this situation with the blind man with the same assumption. And we see this assumption also when we read the book of Job. Job had experienced tragedy, horrible tragedy. Um, Job, hey, your children are dead, all of them. Uh, Job, you're financially bankrupt. Uh, Job, you have this horrible disease all over your body. there could only be one conclusion, according to his friends. You've committed some terrible sin. And now God is punishing you. There is no other conclusion. When we read the entire book of Job, we find out that all three friends are wrong. And when we read John 9, we read that for the disciples, there is only two options, right? This man sinned, maybe even before, maybe even in the womb. Or some people thought even before he was born, somehow his spirit was alive before he was, before he was even conceived, and he, that's when he sinned. Or his parents, that's it, those are the only options. He sinned or his parents did something terrible. Those are the two options. There is no third option, there's no fourth option, that's it. Those of us familiar with the entire New Testament, we see this actually sounds kind of familiar to another story. 
and that is from Luke chapter 13. In Luke 13, Jesus is challenged again, and he offers very similar ideas. So the first five verses of Luke 13, I'll just read them for you quickly. Now, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about some Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or the 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the other people living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Jesus is consistent here. The disciples want to find blame. But Jesus says neither he nor his parents committed the sins that caused the blindness. Neither. Then Jesus adds the kicker. He had he something unexpected. He says, this man was born blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So God's glory might be revealed here. I have to ask, does anyone really understand that? Because I don't get it. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. Um, and so, <laughs> it's hard to understand God's ultimate purposes. And I don't think I'm alone in that, you know, grasping, trying to understand what is God doing all the time? I think that's an exercise in futility. God says, my ways are not your ways, declares the Lord. And this can be applied over and over. We think about this blind man. He endured decades of total darkness. His entire day is begging for money in the hopes that he won't starve to death. And I imagine that this was not the first time he heard this kind of conversation. People come by and go, oh, man, look at this guy. He must have done something horrible. Or his parents were really awful people. And he has to listen to that over and over. It's a terrible situation. Like, it just stinks. <laughs> like, this, is, this isn't fair. I'm looking at it from a human perspective. I don't really know a lot about this person. How much do we know about this blind man? How much do I understand about his life, what it was like? I'm just guessing. And this applies to us. We, we do this. We look at people and we make a call and say, oh, I understand what's going on in that person's life. Do you really? Do you even know what's going on in your own personal life? <laughs> Everything? How much do I understand about my own life? I think I understand. I think I you know, have a pretty good grasp of what my life is all about. Do I really? What about my family, my spouse, my children, my parents? I know everything there is to know about them? Obviously, no, but... Sometimes we act like that's what we think. At the end of the day, there is only one thing we can trust. God is who he said he is. Jesus is who he said he is. Well, that's not enough. No, 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 no. I, just stop the Jesus talk. Let's get back to the other thing. How can bad things be happening to good people? That's a problem right there because I don't know if there's any good people. Um, <laughs> oh, okay, but, you know, bad things happen. God allows it. Tragedies. Where is he? Why didn't God show up? Why didn't he intervene? These are hard questions, actually, and we could do a a year of 
sermons on this and not run out of material. Um, people have been writing books on this question for centuries. And if you're interested in figuring this out, you will never run out of material. <laughs> you could read it for the rest of your life. How does this whole thing work? God is here, suffering, God's good, bad stuff's happening. What is it? How does this work? Now, most people don't bother doing that, of course. Something happened to them or to their brother or to their daughter or something like that, and that was it. That was so unfair and so unjust, I want nothing to do with God. He's not worth the bother. I'm fine without him. You probably know people who have this. Maybe you're one of them. How do you deal with these tragedies? Maybe you're going through something like this right now. But we are all quick to judge God. I've done it. God should have done something there, and he didn't. However, if we trust what scripture says, it says God is sovereign, and he is the only sovereign, not the government, (laughs) not you, not me, just God. Unfortunately, this is very insulting to us, We think, well, we should have some control. It's hard, but God asks us to trust him, that to him, it actually does make sense. Whatever is happening makes sense to God. I just want to think about a cause and effect for a second here. Cause and effect. If God took away suffering whenever we asked for it, we would end up following him for comfort and convenience as a sort of morphine sedative for life. Instead of following out of love, devotion, and gratitude for who he is and what he has done. I'm going to say that again. If God took away suffering whenever we asked for it, we would end up following him for comfort and convenience as a sort of morphine sedative for life instead of following out of love, devotion, and gratitude for what he's done for us and who he is. So as we keep reading through this passage, uh, Jesus only offers a very short explanation. Why did he even do this miracle? Because it was day. (laughs) We all have a finite amount of time on this planet, a finite amount of time to do what God wants us to do. Eventually, Jesus says, night is coming when no one can work. Jesus understood that our opportunities that we have for service and for doing good don't last forever. Even Jesus himself knew that he wasn't going to make it. Eventually, he was going to stir up enough opposition that he would be killed. And even making mud in the ground, which technically, according to the Pharisees, was breaking Sabbath rules, that would get him into even more hot water with the Pharisees. But he did it anyway, because he's a compassionate God. Now, this is a really weird miracle. Like, this is... I mean, miracles are always kind of unusual. That's why they're miracles. They're not standard. Um, But even standard miracles, this is off the board somewhere. Why would you spit in the ground, make mud, put it on the man's eyes, and then, so go wash in that pool over there? (laughs) We can only speculate why Jesus did it like this. And I was reading the commentaries of all sorts of theories why. 
But when we read the Gospels, it's clear Jesus found it important to change his methods of healing. He did not want people to think that there was some magic formula or that he was a formula. It's not the formula, it's the power of God. It's not a method, it's not a formula. Here's a formula. <laughs> so <laughs> the math and science teachers are like, oh yeah, this is beautiful. <laughs> um, and other people look at this and run away. Um, which is weird because this formula, this quadratic formula, it works every time. As long as you follow the math rules, it will always work, which is why it's so great. Um, I still get students who they see it and they go, why are you groaning? This always works. If you had something that always worked to solve a problem, wouldn't you be glad it was there and that you could use it? Um, well, I don't know how to do it properly. Well, okay, <laughs> that's on you. You've got you've to figure this out. Um, <laughs> I teach Chem 30, for those of you who don't. So I teach grade 12 chemistry, and um, people think, well, it's just chemistry. You're just talking about elements on the periodic table. And then they find out on their very first day, this is part of it. This quadratic formula, you're going to, what? No, no, I thought this was like chemistry not math, well, they kind of overlap. You know, that's what's great. You can actually apply this. But anyway, um, I think it's fantastic. This, this, this always works. There's a lot of things in our life that we use that don't work every time. This formula always works. However, my point is, Jesus is not a formula. And he doesn't operate by a formula. There is no formula for knowing what Jesus is going to do next. How is he going to heal somebody? Is he even going to heal somebody? Who is he going to heal? There's no formula. But Jesus can see the big picture. That's what makes him God. He can see the big picture. And as we read the chapter 9, full narrative, we can see people can't see the big picture. The only one who comes close is the blind man himself to seeing the actual big picture. So this brings us to point three. Reaction to transformation is revealing. The people who are supposed to see Jesus for who he is and recognize him for who he is and see what he's doing, like, well, this can only be God. The, the people who should be able to do that they don't. They can't. They won't. It's the Pharisees. The Pharisees spend their entire lives reading scripture, memorizing scripture, and yet they're totally blind to who Jesus is and what he's trying to do. When we read the rest of chapter 9, we can see four reactions, and I'm, I'm not going to go into these too deeply because I know Darren wants to talk about this next week. Um, four general reactions. So the first one is that the neighbors. They knew this blind man when he was blind, and now he's not blind anymore. So they're surprised, obviously, but not all of them believe that this actually happened. This can't, this is too, this is too wonderful. This is too incredible. You can't actually be the same man. The second reaction is the Pharisees and the other religious leaders. They're, they don't believe it. They just deal with it in arrogance and jealousy. That's what's in their hearts, so that's what comes out. The third reaction is the man's parents. You'd think they'd be excited. Well, they kind of are, but they're also not sure. They seem to believe that this happened, but they don't want to say too much because if they do, they might get removed permanently from the synagogue. So they're operating out of fear. And then the fourth reaction is the blind man himself, the healed man. As you read the story and what he says and how he sort of stands up to the Pharisees, he had genuine faith, and it was growing faith. 
It was the green faith, as Darren talked about. Green. It's growing. He takes the consequences of believing in Jesus. He knows the consequences, and he, he takes them anyway. And he's kicked out. At the end of chapter 9, Jesus is very clear to the Pharisees. It's clear as he can be. They're the ones with the problem. It's you guys. But the Pharisees are in denial. They, they can't see the state of their own spirituality. To them, they are the superior ones. Everyone else is inferior to them. They're the only ones who can actually see properly. Everyone else is just wandering around, half blind or fully blind, they're all inferior. The crazy thing about all this is that they say we believe in Moses. Moses has been dead here for over a thousand years. They've never met the man, but they believe him. They believe in Moses. And so much so that they take the words of Moses and they add all this extra stuff on top of that. Traditions and rules that they think are very, very important. And Jesus breaks the rules. Who cares if he heals somebody? He broke our rules. <laughs> That's more important. They can't see. They don't, they can't see who they are. I have a similar, somewhat similar experience with some of my students in high school. <laughs> it's amazing. The conversations that I have. So here's an example. This happened actually not that long ago, and it's happened before. I come to one of my students and I say, you understand how to calculate the pH of baking soda? You know how to do that? Oh, yeah, yeah, I get it. I'm good. Okay, good. Glad to hear it. Then we have a quiz. I come to the same student. Um, so... Are you struggling with this acid-base thing? You know how this works? Oh, yeah, 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 I'm good. I'm, it's great. Really? You got 28% on the quiz. Oh, yeah, you, well, I made one mistake, you know, but I think I get it now, so I'm good. You don't want, like, extra help? You don't want to maybe come in at noon hour and go over some stuff, you know? The, oh, no, 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 I, there's no problem here. This could go on and on and on. And no matter what I do or say, this person will not take any help. <laughs> and then they fail the next exam, too. And it's, like, it's weird. It, it's, so, yeah, I could try to analyze it psychologically, you know. <laughs> but um, they, they just they won't recognize the state of their understanding. Or maybe they're happy to fail and they just want to hang out with their friends. You could do that in the cafeteria. You don't need to come to Camp 30 to do that. Um, anyway, <laughs> it's just one of those things that we have to deal with. Um, but then I look at that, okay, and it's like, well, now, as people, do we do that with God? God might be offering something. It could be almost anything. But if we're not interested or we're worried that we might have to give something up, our response is, no, 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 thanks God, I'm good right now. We'll come, we'll come back to that. Because <laughs> that, that is actually pretty, a pretty dangerous way to live as a Christian. Now, something that I find quite ironic, and I, an ironic twist of irony, we'll say, is the Apostle Paul and his life and how he started following Jesus. When you read chapter 9 of the book of Acts, he was commissioned to destroy the church and to round up as many Jesus followers as he could and put them in prison but then he met Jesus on the road and he went from being able to see to being blind. The exact opposite of this story in John 9. 
He went from seeing to being blind after meeting Jesus. In John 9, you go from being able to not see at all, ever, to being able to see for the first time. But then, <laughs> Paul, it's the opposite. Totally blind. Didn't know where he was. Someone had to hold his hand and lead him along. However, that's just the physical part. Spiritually, Paul was seen for the first time. Even though someone had to hold his hand and let him walk around, he could start to see reality, who Jesus really is, for the first time. Later on, he regained his natural sight and started proclaiming Jesus to anyone who would listen, and even people who didn't want to listen. Couldn't stop talking about Jesus. Eventually, he went back to Jerusalem, and the disciples don't want to see him. (laughs) Some of these disciples, okay, they walked with Jesus. They probably saw Jesus do miracles. Um, They were there at Pentecost, filled with the Holy Spirit. Oh, no, Paul couldn't change. God couldn't really do that, right? Take someone who was was hating everything there was about Jesus and hating his followers to the exact opposite. Could God really do that? Even the disciples were skeptical. Of course, we know the story. Barnabas intervenes and says, I think, I think something has actually happened to Paul. He has actually changed. So this brings us to the sobering question, the concluding question. Which character am I in John chapter 9? Who am I in this story? Oh, yeah, yeah, it's obvious. I'm the blind man. I was blind, and now I see. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. And so that's me. So I, and now I can see everything, and we're good. Now, I don't want to discount that, of course. Those of us who've decided to follow Jesus, we've gone from a state of darkness and blindness to um, life and light. But as we know, that doesn't always mean um, that life is perfect after that. Maybe there's a bit of the skeptical neighbor inside of us. Or the super careful parent who's like, well, I I think it's true, but hmm, I don't know if I want to really give up anything for that. Could we be in that category? Sometimes? All the time? I don't know. And then there's the Pharisees. How much of the Pharisees' attitude is in us? No, Dirksen, Dirksen, stop. You're going to make people uncomfortable. Just ease down. (laughs) Ease down. The Pharisees are the bad guys. I'm not the bad guy. I can't be the bad guy. I can't be the bad guy. I, I can't deny it that sometimes I'm guilty of the exact same attitude that the Pharisees keep on showing. Isn't it possible or even probable that pride, arrogance, jealousy can distort our view so that we misunderstand what God is doing or trying to do? How many initiatives of God done by members of his church get squashed because somebody thought, that doesn't fit. That does not fit into this perfect box that I have for how God works. And that's something we struggle with. I certainly struggle with it. When God calls for obedience and it's not rational, because I like rational. I like logical. This is why I teach math and science. It's all kind of straightforward and predictable. 
God doesn't always work that way. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to tell one more story from my life. So, I went to Bethany Bible College and then I went um, to Providence Seminary in Manitoba. Um, I graduated there in 1998 with a degree from Providence Seminary. Whoopee! And uh, I, I think part of my brain was probably in this mindset. I think I've kind of arrived. You know, seminary degree. Yeah, okay. Um, but I wasn't sure what to do next. And it was kind of a a time where like, I'm, I'm a bit of a crossroads, okay, I've, got, I've done this education, well now what? I had this overwhelming idea, impression, feeling, whatever you want to call it, that God wanted me to work at camp. I had done my time at camp in the early 90s, I worked at Redbury Bible Camp, it was fantastic, I loved it, but that was behind me now. That's what I thought. But I just, I couldn't shake this idea. So finally, I called Redberry. I knew the director there, and I said, hey, you, you could use me? He said, nope. <laughs> we have no need of your services at all. <laughs> oh. <laughs> that was a bit of a punch to the gut. Um, but then he said, I hear that West Bank is looking for male counselors. West Bank? Like, in Israel? <laughs> no, no, there's a camp nearest Fifth Current. Oh, yeah, right, right, okay. <laughs> okay, I'll give them a call. What have I got to lose? Um, yeah, it turns out that they were looking for male counselors, so I went there, spent the summer there. Somehow I went from completing a degree in seminary to working as a camp counselor stuck in a cabin with a bunch of 10-year-olds. Again, this is my problem. Uh, that doesn't seem rational. <laughs> but it was great. Actually, I would call it phenomenal. And then I went back to West Bank for two more summers as the program director. It was so amazing. Then a little later, a couple years after, um, I got another strong impression. I was working in construction in Saskatoon, and I got this impression that there's this opportunity for you to become this youth pastor which is something I'd said, I'm never going to do that. Um, <laughs> but I couldn't shake it. Again, I couldn't shake it. So I got the job. And I believed that, you know, this is what God wanted me to do. Eighteen months later, I was out of there. And, I've, you know, many of you have heard the story um, of how that affected me, and it was, it was not positive. In fact, I almost gave up the faith completely. I was just hanging by a thread, really. Um, it was a very, you know, painful time. So what happened? Well, I think I have to concede something, whether I want to or not. I have to concede something that it's entirely possible God was leading me both times. Just because one experience was more painful than the other, it doesn't mean God wasn't in it. Can God lead us into pain? I certainly think he can, and I think he does. That doesn't sound very encouraging. But we can't see the big picture. God does. And if you read scripture and read history of people who followed God, it's not sunshine and roses every day. You won't find that. I'm going to conclude with uh, Paul's words from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The Spirit searches all things, 
even the deep things of God. For who knows the person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, because spiritual reality, explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. The person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, but are considered foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the spirit. The person, the person with the spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Amen. May it be so in our lives. Please bow with me in a prayer. Lord, it is evident as we continue walking through this life that we are in need of you. We don't always recognize that, but it's true. Help us to depend on you. Help us to listen to your guidance, to listen to your leading and your spirit. Help us to trust you, that you see the big picture, that you can change people. Give us eyes to see what you are doing and not relying on our own wisdom, on our own rationality. And now as we go into this time of our annual meeting, give us discernment and wisdom and clarity what you would have us do as we plan to serve your gospel and your message and your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. We're just going to have a few minutes here to set up the meeting and to get the Zoom, Zoom started. Uh, and then we will start our meeting.